This weekend marks the third weekend of Advent, and I know that you guys have been walking through the series, watching and waiting, and uh, Pastor Brad and I have been talking over the weeks, and um, it's really interesting. The more, the more I explore Advent, and I think the more we explore Advent, the more we realize that everything about Advent runs smack dab up against the Christmas season, Right? Last week, I went to the mall. I hate the mall. I can't, I can't stand the mall. Um, but I had to go because it's Christmas. So I, I, I went. And, um, and everything about the mall teaches you to want stuff, right? Everything is telling you, you know, get this stuff. Get this stuff. Get it for somebody else. Get it for yourself. Get it now while supplies last and while it's on, on sale. And I just hate what that does to my heart. Because Advent teaches us not to want stuff right away, but Advent teaches us to wait. Right? Yeah, to expect. To look up. uh, To keep watch, right? The center of the mall, you get this uh, man in a red suit. Big belly. Santa Claus is what... Christmas season is all about, bringing presents to those who have been good this year. But Advent, especially as we look today, brings us face-to-face with somebody else. And the person it brings us face-to-face with is a guy named John the Baptist, who doesn't have a big belly, doesn't have rosy cheeks, he's got wild eyes, an odd diet, camel hair suit, and he brings a message of repentance and judgment. So I want to look at John the Baptist. I think he's a fascinating figure, because I think if we understand John, we're going to get what Advent's all about. So the passage I want to look at is Matthew chapter 3. If you have a Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 3, and we'll look at uh, verses 1 to 12. Matthew chapter 3... Verses 1 to 12. Matthew's the first book in the New Testament. Um, Yeah, in honor of God's word, let's stand together as I read this. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan, about the Jordan, were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming to baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourself, Well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree that, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. 
But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear the threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Wow. Jesus, this is your word, and you are present with your people this morning. And so we pray that you would speak to us. That's what you do. You do speak. And so we pray that you would help us to listen, that you would help us to to lean in, to soften hard hearts, to unstop closed ears, to open blind eyes, and grant us a courage to respond to whatever you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So, this morning we're going to look at a pretty unchristmassy figure, John the Baptist. I don't know about you, I've never received a Christmas card with John the Baptist on the front. <laughs> right? John the Baptist, Merry Christmas, you brood of vipers, you know, right? <laughs> I've, never, I've never got one of those. I've never had an advent calendar that you've opened up and seen John the Baptist, right? And you pull out the chocolate and it's a chocolate-covered locust, right? I've never seen that. <laughs> he's, he's not really your Christmassy type figure. There's a wildness to John. And it matches the wilderness in which we find him. There's an oddness to John that's out of sync with the Christmas season. And many of us, we want Christmas to look a certain way, but John's not going to allow us to look at Christmas a certain way. He's going to shape it. And here's the thing. To get to Jesus, you have to go through John. And so this third week of Advent, what I'd like to do is look at John the Baptist. And I was very proud of the way I put this together because it's actually clear. Sometimes I just have lots of ideas and I'll leave it to you to sort it out. But this one, I was quite impressed with myself. No. Um, I have three points. Look at this. You ready? Do we have them? John the Baptist teaches us to get ready, to get real, and to get right. Huh? Okay. Thank you. I can stop right there. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, if you read... Um, the Gospels. Now, the Gospels, there's four Gospels in the New Testament, and they're basically just the stories of Jesus, right? So you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In each one of the Gospels, you encounter John the Baptist. And he's quite a character. Imagine him with a grizzled beard, wide eyes. He's one of those guys who would look at you with an intensity that would cut right through you. Makes you want to look away. But John the Baptist is one of the most single-minded persons you're going to come across in the Bible. He's very clear on his role. He's very clear on his calling. Because if you know his story, you know that his, his calling and his role was set a long time earlier, right? Because his dad, Zechariah, uh, when he was in a temple one day and he was worshiping, an angel comes, angel Gabriel, and speaks to him and says to Zechariah, John the Baptist's dad, said, you know what? You and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to have a child. And this child is going to, what does it say? He will, quote, turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. 
and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Okay? Now, in Mark's gospel, when we are introduced to John the Baptist, they quote a passage from the last book of the Old Testament, uh, from the book of Malachi. And in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says this about, and it's referring to John the Baptist, a prophecy about John the Baptist. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare a way before me. Now, who is this messenger? We also read in Malachi that this messenger, he says, I send you, again, Elijah the prophet, before that great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, why this mention of Elijah? Who is, who is Elijah? He was a prophet, right, from the Old Testament. Did he die? No, no he didn't die, right? He was, he, was, he was taken up. And so between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's this expectation, there's this growing expectation, especially in Israel, um, there's this growing expectation that God was going to send again Elijah and when Elijah comes, that is the signal. That is the key. That's the indicator that God is about to rescue his people. He's about to do something decisive in history, right? And so what do we know about Elijah? Well, what does he look like? Well, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8 says this about Elijah. He wore a garment of hair with a leather belt around his waist. And all this points to the fact that in many ways, John the Baptist takes on the role of this Elijah. And for John, his calling is always clear. For John, he's straddling history. He's got one foot in the, in, 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 in the new world to come and a one foot in the old world. And John is the guy, he's kind of standing there and he's saying, God is about to do something big. Get ready. Get ready. And so how does he do this? Well, he calls people to repentance. Now, repentance is a big word that it's often misunderstood. Repentance is not just about saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is, is, is a turning around, right? It's I'm going this way. Repentance is doing a full 180 and starting to walk the other way. Repentance is I think this way, and then I pull a full 180, and I begin to think this way. And so he's calling the people to repentance. And so how does he do this? It, it involves baptism in the Jordan River. And the baptism is a baptism that's preparing people. It's just saying, you know what? Something big is about to happen. Get ready. Get ready. And by being baptized, by being put under the water, they're saying, you know what? I want, my, I want to be forgiven. I want my heart to be ready for when something's about to happen. So John the Baptist, I mean, he's, he's crying out. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so... Advent is about getting ready, getting our hearts ready for Jesus' coming. Advent is not about getting ready for Christmas. It's about getting ready for Jesus. And there's a big difference. One will leave you with a credit card debt, right? And one will give you life. So, Advent is time to get ready for Jesus. We look deep into our hearts, see where our hearts are out of sync with God, and we turn, we repent, we, go, we turn back towards Him. But it's also time to get real. Look what uh, John says in verse 7. He says, When he sees many of these Pharisees and the Sadducees coming 
to his baptism, he says to them, he says to them, now, I did, you know, I explained this before, but you can't just say you brood of vipers, right? You can just imagine him looking, and he says, you brood of vipers, right? He has to say it with a Scottish <laughs> accent, right? Because you brood of vipers just doesn't have the same kick to it, right? So you can just see him, he sees the Pharisees, he sees the Sadducees, you brood of vipers, right? He goes after them, and he goes after them hard. Like, if you want to learn about how to win friends and influence people, don't look to John the Baptist, right? Uh, I mean, he gets in trouble. I mean, it eventually gets him killed, right? So he reads, um, we read that the Pharisees and the Sadducees are coming to be baptized, and John just completely goes after them. Why? Why does he go after these two groups of people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees? Well, the Pharisees, they were, they were the religiously serious. They were the ones that, they, they knew God. They knew the law of God. Well, they knew the law of God. I don't know if they knew God always. They were sticklers for practicing God's rules perfectly. The Sadducees, they were the sophisticated. They were, the, they were more the political religious leaders. It was their job, um, in part, to make sure that um, there were smooth relations between the religious structures in Israel and the Roman Empire. So one, you get the Pharisees, the religiously serious. The Sadducees are the religiously sophisticated. Um, and so John sees them coming, and he calls them out. He calls them brood of vipers. Why? Because he, he saw in the religiously serious, he saw in the, Sadduce, uh, the, the Pharisees, he knew that they were serious about religion, but he also knew that they were quite proud about how seriously they took religion. I think that's a real warning for us. <laughs> Here's the thing. You and I can be completely dedicated to God and, and miss him. Right? You could be the most religious person, the most serious person about your faith in a way and miss, and miss Jesus, which I think is a big warning. The Pharisees are like a lot of Christians who are serious about their faith. They tithe, they give, they serve, they fast, they lead small groups. But then they look at you and say, well, why can't you be more like me? Right? You call yourself a Christian. I mean, look at the, what I'm doing and by comparison, you're terrible, right? Or the, the religiously serious, are, they're the ones that kind of, when they're speaking to you, they're talking about something else, but they try to, they, they, they slip in the fact that, you know, they're quite devout in their faith. So they'll say, hey, you know, Dan, you know, when I was up at 5 o'clock this morning doing my devotions, I couldn't help but notice that it was raining outside. <laughs> And, you know, they'll, they'll just slip it in, right? And, and their goal is to show you how serious they are about their faith and, by comparison, how you're not, right? But here's the thing. In our desire to show how serious we are about God, we can miss God. And John sees the Pharisees, and he calls them out. And you know, Jesus calls them out, too. What does Jesus call the Pharisees? He calls them a whitewashed tomb. Think about that. You know, it's a good-looking tomb, but there's bones on the inside. It's dead on the inside. And Jesus, he, he sees through them as well, right? And the Sadducees, the Sadducees, they're, they're a funny bunch. 
because they're the religiously sophisticated. And they're the kind of people that see, you know what? A little bit of religion should, will do you good, right? They're the ones that come to church and they're like, it's good to go to church. And they'll slip it in when they're talking to people. Yeah, well, you need to know I do go to church, right? And they come to church and they're happy to be in church. They're happy to be church people. Um, their kids are dressed up and, and they think it's good for their kids to go to church because, because it'll do them good. And they see the teaching that you get at church as, as, as a modest program for self-improvement. And here's the thing. Preaching has very little impact on either the religiously serious or the religiously sophisticated. Because the religiously serious, when they hear sermons, what are they listening to? They're listening for mistakes. They're listening for heresy. Or they're listening in such a way saying, you know what, you should pay attention to this. Are you listening to what the preacher's saying? This is really important. The, re the religiously sophisticated, they're just happy to be there. They're not paying attention at all. They're just like, I think it's good for me to be in church. Um, but they don't take anything in because let's not get carried away, right? What does our man John say to both groups? Get real. Get real. Because he knows, and we need to get this, you know, the best place to hide from God is the church. Do you know that? The best place to hide from God is the church because nobody will suspect a thing. You can go to church. Oh, well, obviously, he's, he, or she, she, she's into Jesus, right? If you're a part of an atheist club, it's pretty easy to spot. You're not really, in, you're not following Jesus, right? But if you're in church, nobody's going to suspect a thing. And so I always find the best place for people to hide, to avoid Jesus, is the church. Because nobody suspects a thing. Now John, our man John, sees through this. And he essentially says, get real. This is not a game. Do you not realize that the Lord is coming and you're playing games? Are you kidding me? Now I've given this quote before. I love this quote um, it's by a woman named Annie Dillard. It's from her book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. I think it's Teaching a Stone to Talk. This is what she says. Why do people in church seem like cheerful, brainless tourists on a package tour of the absolute? <laughs> is that not awesome or what? Does anyone have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or, as I suspect, does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. <laughs> Ushers should issue life preservers and signal flares. They should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. Wow. I love that. It's, it's, it's awesome. And you know, and that's the thing. You can go a long time going to church and never have your heart alive to, to Jesus. I remember 10, about 10 or 11 years ago, you know, one of the places where you can really hide from Jesus is being a pastor because nobody will suspect that you're far away, right? But I was pretty dry in my, in my heart about uh, 10 or 11 years ago. 
And I remember talking, uh, I remember talking, uh, I see this guy once a month, he's a spiritual director, he just helps me in my spiritual walk, but I began to start seeing him about 11 years ago, and it was weird, it was weird, because I went to see him, and I sat down in front of him, and I've never done it, like I've never gone to a counselor or anything like that before, and I didn't know what to do, and he looked at me, he says, so what are you thinking? I'm like, I said, this is weird for me. And he says, all right, well, tell me, what's on your mind? I said, well, here's the thing. I said, I'm a pastor. I can make up a story about how I'm struggling in this. And str- I said, I can, I, can, I, can, I can snow you, basically. And uh, I won't say precisely what he said to me. He says, he says, yeah, you can say all this to me. He goes, but you and I both know that it would be, any kids in here? BS. Thank you for the whole thing. Um, and he says, be honest with me. And what he did is he taught me to be honest with God and to just be very honest with God. And so many of us just play games with God. We, we, we say, God, we, we put up faces that we think God's impressed with. But he really wants to know us as we are. And, uh, and that's what we need to get to. We need to be very honest. Because it's not like God doesn't know what's going on in your heart. You can put up this face all you want. It's not like he, oh, wow, you fooled me. Um, he knows, right? <laughs> he knows what's going on in your heart. So you may as well be honest with him. Well, this leads us to our third call. The third call, the first is to get ready. Second is to get real. And then John the Baptist leads us to the third call, and that is to get right. And when we read our passage, there's an echo of the Old Testament. There's, well, there's a quotation from the Old Testament. This is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he says, A voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is from Isaiah 40. A voice of one crying in the wilderness. Isaiah is a prophet from the Old Testament. Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. So who is a messenger? He's the new Elijah, John the Baptist. Who's John the Baptist preparing the way for? Jesus? Yeah. <laughs> Jesus. It's always a safe answer. Is it Jesus? Um, but in the Old Testament, he's preparing the way for the, for the Lord, right? Now, you have to realize, in the Old Testament, the word Lord is the word... Yahweh, basically, which is a covenant God of the universe. And that passage is now being applied to Jesus. Now, we can't miss that, right? That John is preparing the way for Jesus, and he's fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 40, which is preparing the way for the Lord, which is preparing the way for God, which says something about who Jesus is, right? That the coming Lord is identified with Jesus. That Jesus... The one who is coming is none other than God himself. Now, this is huge. This is huge. The immortal becomes mortal. The impossible becomes possible. And what Christmas tells us is that God is so transcendent that he breaks through and he becomes imminent. He becomes incarnate. He becomes human in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you might be listening to this and be like, well, that's what they believed in the olden days. They believed Jesus, who is probably just a good teacher. They believed him to be God, but, you know, we know better now. But here's the thing. If there's ever a group of people with a bias against saying Jesus is God, it's going to be a first-century monotheistic Jew. 
who believes God is one. And something, Jesus is going to have to do something pretty big to convince a monotheistic Jew who has a lot of baggage against saying God became human. Jesus is going to have to do something pretty big to convince a lot of monotheistic Jews that Jesus is God incarnate. Right? So Jesus had to have said something and done something to really change people's thinking. And so we can't just say, oh, well, that was the olden days. That's chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis calls it, because there is a, I mean, in the first century, if you're a Jew, you're going to have a bias against this. But somehow, something that Jesus says and does radically transforms the way they think and see the world. So how does all this relate to you and me this morning? Well, because God himself is coming, you and I need to get right with him before it's too late. How? Well, I think the clue is where all this takes place. Where does all this take place? It takes place in the wilderness. And we have to remember, if you, if you know the Bible fairly well, you'll know that God does his best work in the wilderness. You see this in, in the story of Jacob, the people of Israel. You see the story of, of Moses. The wilderness is really important. Why is the wilderness so important? Because you and I, on our own, cannot survive in the wilderness. And, and when I say wilderness, don't be thinking of Belcara Park, right? right? That's not, you know, when we think of wilderness here, it's like, I'm going off into the woods. Well, you know what? You and I can survive in the woods, right? If you know which berries to eat and which mushrooms to eat and how to fish and how to hunt, you can survive in the woods in B.C., the wilderness is not the woods of B.C. The wilderness is a desert. It's a place of thorns. It's a place of death. It's a place where there's no food, there's thirst, there's no community. And here's the thing. Scripture teaches us is that we meet God in the wilderness. Because in the wilderness, there's nothing you and I bring to the table. We can't bring anything to the table. We got nothing. We got nothing. And that's why John the Baptist, he goes after the Pharisees and the Sadducees because he says to them, he says, you are coming to this baptism. You think that you can kind of ride the coattails of the fact that you're part of the children of Abraham? Don't you realize that God can raise up children from these rocks? You think you can bring this pedigree and this is somehow going to help you? You got nothing. You got nothing. You bring nothing to the table. Your soul is in the wilderness. You've got nothing. Now, I have to tell you a little bit of church history. It's always fun. Um, so, in the 4th century, in the 300s, in the early 300s, something big happened in the, in the history of the church. Something unforeseen. The church, up until um, prior to 312 AD, the church had been persecuted pr pretty bad. But then the, the impossible took place in about 312 A.D. Do you know what happened? What happened? Constantine, yeah. yeah. The emperor became Christian-ish. Um, we're not sure if he is, 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 sort of. But all what did happen is that the persecution ended, right? So everybody's like, whoa, that's awesome, right? Guys like Eusebius are like, whoa, our, our biggest dreams have been fulfilled. But the problem is, is now... If you're in the Roman Empire, 
it's now advantageous for you to be a Christian, right? Because if you want to move up in government and the emperor is a Christian, it would actually serve you well to say you're a Christian, right? And so you have all these people who don't even know anything about Jesus. They don't know how to spell Jesus. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I like that. What's his name again? Jesus. I like Jesus. Yeah. And they're becoming bishops and they're becoming moving up in the government. But they, they have no interest in Jesus at all. They just know it's kind of advantageous to move up in the government. And so you had a, a number of people just saying, man, what has happened? Maybe things are better when we were being persecuted. And so you had this movement among young people saying, we need to get right with Jesus. And where did they go? Into the desert. They go hundreds and hundreds and thousands of young people rush off into the desert because they want it to be in a place where their hearts and their souls are completely dependent upon Jesus. And they write down a lot of their experiences. And so you get the desert fathers and the desert mothers telling their stories. But it's really an interesting movement. It's this desire to have your heart alive to Jesus, where you're in a place where only God is enough. And John the Baptist is a voice crying in the wilderness, get ready, get real, and get right. The Lord is coming. He's greater than me. He will baptize you one day with the Holy Spirit and fire. On your own, you're dead in the wilderness. But in, 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 in the one that's coming, you will be made right. Now, there's a guy, an interesting guy. Uh, we don't know anything about this guy other than he tells this story of what took place in his life in 1740 in Pennsylvania. And the guy's name is Nathan Cole. Nathan Cole is a farmer. He was a farmer. And Nathan Cole was farming, and he hears word. He hears rumor. He's in a, this rural place. Obviously, he's a farmer. He's not farming in the city. Um, he's, in an, he's a farmer, and he hears word that somebody is coming to a town close by. Who is this person that's coming? None other than a guy named George Whitfield. Yeah, nobody. George Whitfield is probably next to Billy Graham the greatest evangelist in the history of the church unbelievable evangelist evangelized all around uh, Britain all around North America and so they have word that George Whitfield is coming he's coming and so what does he do he drops his farming instrument he drops it as where he's standing he runs home tells his wife he says George Whitfield is coming to Middleton. we got to get there. So he runs out, and the wife gets ready. He, he grabs his horse, and they both get on the horse, and they ride like as hard as they can. They say in, in his eyewitness account, he says, we ran until our horse got out of breath, and then we got off and gave him a chance to catch his breath. Then we got back onto the horse, and we got closer and closer. We got about a mile or two away from Middleton. And as we got there, we saw before us a cloud or a fog rising. He goes, oh, at first I thought it was a great river and fog coming from the, from the river, but it wasn't. What it was is thousands and thousands of people who had heard rumor that George Whitfield was coming to town. And it's all the dust of people coming from miles and miles around. Along the great river, there's all these boats and all these people going as if their life depended on it to hear George Whitfield 
share the gospel. And then he gets to the point where he hears Whitfield. Now, Whitfield was quite the preacher. Now, it has nothing to do with their story, but it's kind of fun. Um, Whitfield used to preach to crowds of 25,000 people without a microphone. Now, some of you might think, well, that might be exaggerated, but no. We know there's 25,000 people. Do you know how we know? One of Whitfield's best friends was a guy named Benjamin Franklin. Benjamin Franklin would listen to Whitfield. And Benjamin Franklin, ever the mathematician, he's looking around, he's like, I wonder how many people are here. And so one time in Philadelphia, Benjamin Franklin actually walked the perimeter and he did the calculation and he figured there's 25,000 people listening. Nothing to do with the story. It's just kind of fun. Um, <laughs> so Nathan Cole hears Whitfield preach and he hears the story of Jesus Christ for the first time, really hears it for the first time. This is what he says. He says, And hearing him preach gave me a heart wound. By God's blessing, my old foundation was broken up. And I saw my righteousness would not save me. All that I could do would not save me. And what Nathan Cole realized in this encounter is what you and I need to realize. It's the advent of Jesus Christ that alone can make you and me right with God. That we bring nothing to the table. It is his first advent. The word became flesh that changes everything. It'll change everything. In you. It'll, cha it'll change your heart. The reality of Jesus Christ will change your heart. I find that most people are, are consumed with two things in our world today. They're consumed with fear and control. And a lot of people are afraid. And we deal with our fears by trying to be in control of our lives. But control is always elusive. And it just creates more fear. And people are paralyzed with fear in our world today. And, and religion doesn't always help because religion just kind of exacerbates things because it's like, okay, I'm scared enough. Now I wonder if I'm enough for God. And so you start doing good things. You start, you start striving and straining in order to at least get right with God. And you're reaching up and reaching up and reaching up. And you're always anxious. Have I done enough to be okay with God? And here's the thing, what Christianity teaches is that you can reach up all you want, you're not going to reach God. God has to come down, right? And so the message of Christmas is love came down at Christmas. You don't reach up, you're not going to reach him. God is always on the front foot. He knows that we can't do this on our own. And I think it's a game changer because the Christian life, the, the life that we're invited into, is not about striving and struggling. The Christian life is about receiving what God has done for us. It's about receiving with open hands. Now, you have to receive still. But God does all the heavy lifting. He does all the heavy work. Our job is to receive. So, and that will change your heart. It'll change your heart, but it also, it changes even how you understand things like suffering, right? Uh, so many world religions have no answer for suffering. If you're an Eastern philosophy, what do you do with suffering? Well, you say, well, it's, a, it's, it's not real, or it's, a, it's an illusion, it's maya, or it's, it's a result of you being overly, overly attached, or 
Christianity says, no, 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 suffering is real. You know, I just did a funeral yesterday for this guy who suddenly got cancer and, and died very, very quickly. Suffering is real, but here's the thing. We know that the God we worship gets suffering. He's not oblivious. He's not on some cloud with his eyes half closed, but he hung on a cross. So he gets it, and he'll meet you in the midst of your suffering, and that's a game changer. Not only does he meet you in the midst of your suffering, but we know that because of his resurrection, the suffering won't have the final word. The final word's life, right? That's a game changer. It also changes how you look at what it means to be human because God himself became man. God became incarnate. Right away that tells you that the body, our bodies matter. And how we treat our bodies, how we understand our bodies really matters. And it also is, is a great impetus for, for caring for the poor. Why do we do the cold, wet weather mat program? Because we want to, because the body matters. Food matters. Why are we building an orphanage in, in Mexico? Because having a roof over the head for physical bodies, orphans, matters, right? This all comes out of Christmas. It all comes out of this. And so our call this third week of Advent is what? To get ready. It's not about counting days to Christmas. It's about getting ready for Jesus. It's about getting real. None of our good works or good deeds are going to make us right with God. We're all stuck in the wilderness, and we need God to rescue us. And it's a call to get right. Apart from God, we are dead. And you know what? I think we feel it within. We know that there's something deeply wrong with our hearts. We know there's something deeply wrong with this world. All the things that we think are going to deliver won't cut it. And the only way to get right is to bow before the coming king. So Jesus has come. Jesus is coming. And I think, man, I'm saying this to myself, I don't want to get so busy getting ready for Christmas that I miss Jesus. And that has happened to me so many times. And I know it's happened because after Christmas, I'm disappointed. Right? Jesus doesn't disappoint. Christmas can disappoint. So don't get so bent on Christmas that you miss Jesus. Does that make sense? All right, well, let's pray. Jesus, that's our desire. We don't want to get so bent on Christmas that we miss you. And we can become so religious that, uh, that we miss you, the real McCoy. And our hearts are tricky that way. So help our hearts to be alive to you. We pray that you would transform us, make us into the women and men you created us and redeemed us to be. Help us to watch and to wait and to prepare our hearts for you. That's our desire, and we lay that out before you. In Jesus' name, amen.